Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 244 and my conversation with Texas-based percussion educator and freelance performer, Paige Durr. Let's get right to it. I'm meeting Paige for the first time in this conversation, and it was great to get a chance to talk to her. She was just coming off the road for the first time in a year, and she's, right as I'm talking to you, working in the Girls March camp, hosted at Capel High School in Texas by previous podcast guests, Rachel Taylor and Annie Chernow. So it's the perfect time to talk to Paige. Paige Durr is based in Mesquite, Texas area, and is active as a percussion specialist, educator, and performer. She's worked on tours and has been active as a solo, chamber, and pit percussionist for many groups. She's active on social media as a performer and has gotten her education at James Madison University in Virginia with both Bill Rice and Casey Cangelosi. All right, enough preamble, so let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on May 18th, 2021, and it begins right now. So, Paige, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities at the, as they are at this point. Right now, uh, I'm really not doing anything. All right, next, next question. Uh. <laughs> at the Paper Mill Playhouse, which is in New Jersey, um, where we did a stream show. So we were there for two and a half weeks um, in rehearsals, and then we spent like 10 hours recording. So someone is going to edit it and then it will be available for their members to stream later. Um, but before that, I was uh, working in the Mesquite ISD here right outside of Dallas. And so uh, my responsibility was as a percussion specialist, I would go and I would teach lessons, private lessons and also like master classes every week. So I was at two middle schools and a high school doing that. And we have been in person pretty much the whole year. You're just on a cruise or so, or something like that? Yeah, so I was on the boat for two weeks, and then COVID hit, like blew up. And we were docking out of New York. Um, so we were stuck on that boat for an extra week because no docks wanted to take us after we were going out of New York because it blew up in New York City, like right away. Um, so we had, we opened and closed in the same week. We did our four shows, and then that was it. So that second week, there were no guests on the boat. It was just the crew. And people started being quarantined like flies, like they were dropping like flies, sending them into guest rooms, getting them away from us. And then it was like, you might go home soon. We don't know. And then it was like the next day, yeah, all entertainment. You're going home tomorrow. And we were like, oh, we need to pack up our rooms and everything. And then they just kicked us off the boat. <laughs> wow. Wait, okay, so you need to back up, but we'll just start. I just want to know, like, tell me that, give me that whole situation, because that, that just sounds bonkers. It started out fine. Like, we were had three weeks of rehearsals, and then one of the, the band members of my show, so I did six of the musical, so it was four band members on the stage, and then the six queens, um, and the bass guitar player was from South Korea. 
So it started to get bad in rehearsals because they took her away and they were like, you need a quarantine. You have to get tested. You came from this country that has already had COVID. And so they had to like call in another bass player just for rehearsals. And that's when things were like, "Uh oh, this doesn't seem good. But they let us get on the boat. We got on the boat. We did rehearsals for the first week. And then borders started closing. And that whole cast is from the UK. So when the borders closed to the UK, then the whole cast was freaking out because they're like, how are we going to get home? Are they going to let us back in? Are we going to be stuck on the boat for months? Um, so, you know, our directors were trying to like not, we had a performance the next day after the UK borders closed and they were like, don't think about this. Like we have a job to do still. Um, so we opened, performance happened, and then that was Thursday, and we had two more performances on Friday. Friday morning, they were like, yeah, we're not going to have guests next week. So then we were like, oh, snap, something, it's, it's happening. Um, so at that moment, we were all just like, you don't know if we're coming home, because like other boats had already not had guests, and they were making the crew just be stuck there as well. Um, so we did our next two shows. We closed. We knew it was going to be our our closing show and then the next day all the guests got off we didn't get off um we were stuck in new york for a couple more days and then we just left like we were just trying to go anywhere that would take us and then finally we got to florida and there was a doc i believe in miami that finally was like okay we'll let you in we can't let anybody off yet and so you know then people started to get sick on the boat other crew members and they were making them go. I mean, they ended up being in nicer rooms, um, but everybody that was in entertainment that they could get a flight. So there was a few people that were like from South Africa, um, the South Korean girl, they were stuck on the boat for like an extra two weeks after I had already been home. Just, you know, stuck. Everybody was out of crew rooms at that point. They were all in guest rooms and they were like, here's your checklist of what you want to eat. And, We'll bring it to you. You can't leave your room. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Did you well, at least? Was still on there. Yeah. Could you at least have a room that had a window? I think or they room? all had windows, yeah. And okay. a little dock deck that they could go out on, but yeah. About to say, the, I mean, if there's one thing that's that may be worse than anything is is not is it being in a room that doesn't have a window and then you can't leave. <laughs> Yeah, feels so trapped. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, like, when you're when that's going on, are you? They tell you like day day three, we still can't go anywhere. They like, do they give you updates, or are they just like not telling you anything and just hoping you just kind of hang out? They gave us the updates that they could give us. Okay. Um. There were there were there were days where we didn't hear anything. We were just sitting in New York, so like we didn't hear anything. And then you know, finally they were like, "We're just gonna go. We're gonna go towards Florida, and hopefully somebody will take us." Because I think originally we were gonna go to Norfolk, Virginia, mm -hmm. and then they were like, "No." Um, so then we kept going south, and then finally they let us dock in Florida. Yeah, it was all just like very quick, quick information like. 
and it would change all the time. You know, we were like telling our family, oh, we're going to Virginia. And everybody's like, where's Virginia? And like, you know, they're not from the U.S. I was one of like two people from the U.S. in our whole cast. <laughs> and they're like, what is Virginia? And I'm like, well, it's a state. <laughs> it's my state. I <laughs> I was like, I know this state. <laughs> They're like, but what's, how is it different than, isn't that West Virginia? And I was like, no. <laughs> it was a good time. And yeah. hey, that's fighting words, if you will. I mean, uh, I don't know all the countries in Europe, but I'm like, it's fine. Explain it to them. <laughs> <laughs> that depends. It depends where you are in Virginia. That could be fighting words. If you, uh, it's like, yeah. is that West Virginia? JMU is is in the the part that's close to West Virginia. I mean, we can, you know, it's nearby. It is. Yeah. I, we used to go to West Virginia and hang out. Pretty back roads there. Oh, yeah. I-64. It's really pretty. It's probably maybe the pretty, one of the prettiest interstates. And like not 110 degrees. Yes, I miss that. <laughs> yeah. A chance for a cool evening that you might be able to to sleep under. How do, does it turn out that you even get that position to do, to, to play for that musical? When I moved to Texas, I was like, oh, I kind of just want to see what band is like here. Like, it's very different than Virginia, which is like basically all I knew. I mean, I grew up in Maryland, but Virginia and Maryland are very similar. So then I was like, well, I kind of want to see what it's like to like have a job and just teach percussion to, you know, a regular school system of kids. And then I was like, Okay, I really miss performing. And so I was looking, I auditioned for Cirque du Soleil as well around the same time because they were looking for drummers. And then I was like, I'm just going to look at the Playbill website and see if they have any drummer positions. And they had the listing for the boat. And then I sent them my resume and they were like, send us some videos. So I sent some videos and then they were like, they sent me this like very cryptic email back. They were like, okay, you have 24 hours to send us back videos of you sight reading this here's the music go i was like oh my gosh so yeah it was like once you open the link it was there was like a timer and you like had to send it back in a certain time and i was like oh it shouldn't be too bad like sight reading and then i get the list and it's like 20 different drum set grooves that you have to film like 20 you know 20 or 30 seconds of and i was like oh my gosh ah. and then they were like sight read these three tunes like two times send us two different you know recordings of it and i was like okay not too bad and then the one was like 10 pages long and i was like oh my gosh but you know, ended up working out and I emailed them back all the stuff. And then they were like, okay, great. Here's another like round. Let's have a phone interview. And then I got the job. So what's the time frame between getting the job and then everything starting up? I got the job at the end of December and we started in February. So pretty quick turnaround to be like, like for me, luckily when I moved to Texas, I moved back in with my family because I was trying to save money. Um, so like, I didn't have to figure out someone to like take over my lease or anything like that, but there's other people that, you know, lived in apartments, like you have two months to find someone to take over your lease or you're going to pay for it while you're on the boat. Um, but it was quick and I was, I was like, I miss performing, so I'm ready to go. On something like that, what's the, what's the requirement for you in terms of how much stuff you got to bring, how much stuff do they have? What What's the that situation? Yeah, it really depends on the show. The show that I was doing, I had an electronic kit, um, which I didn't really prefer, but I didn't have a choice. 
Um, so I just had to bring sticks and whatever else I wanted. But there was also Jersey Boys on our boat, and they used a real kit. So he brought his cymbals and also sticks. Um, but that was about it. They provided m- mostly everything else. And obviously, like, clothes and things you need to, like, live here <laughs> for six months. And it was interesting because our boat was going, first half of the contract would have been to the Caribbean. And then the second half was to Alaska. So I had mm-hmm. to pack for all seasons because it was going to be cold in Alaska, but hot in the Caribbean. My wife and I actually went on, that's the one cruise I've been on was an Alaska cruise. Um, and it's, it's amazing. Yeah. But yes, we were in, uh, we had, we were frequently in all of our winter, like we didn't even pack that much. We were just like seven layers of things like this is what's going to keep me warm. Yeah. But when you got that, were you already teaching and were was like that a seasonal, like you weren't teaching the spring or like what happened with that? So when I was teaching, basically I wasn't on like a contract contract through the school system, the the specialists are just paid through the band. So I was mm-hmm. like, I told them, you know, before December that I was like, I'm looking for performing jobs, just letting you know. Um, and luckily the percussion director there had known people that were graduating in, from colleges around the area in the fall. So he, he had someone lined up for when I left. So it wasn't too bad. And then once I got back, I was like, well, I'm back if you want me to come back. So this year, except for like the last three weeks, I've, I was at the same schools for the whole year, whole school year, basically. So now, wait, how long have you been in Texas to- total time so far? This July will be your beginning of year three, so all complete two years. And what are you at the same place that you were like? Is this the, the only school you've been part of or have you been in other districts? So there? First year I was at West Mesquite High School and then their middle school, one of the middle schools that fed in. And then I had seen on like a Facebook page that North Mesquite, which was like two minute drive down the street, was also looking for someone to help out. So last year I was at like five schools. And then this year I was like, I don't. That was hectic. That was crazy. Five schools is a lot. So I just stayed with the North Mesquite Cluster. So now I'm at two middle schools in that high school. Now, what are your actual responsibilities with all of these schools? Yeah, so it really depends on what the band director wants me to work on with them that day. Um, we just had, before I left, they had um, a percussion ensemble concert. So I would rehearse their percussion ensemble pieces and then... They also had, uh, what's it called? Not festival. They don't call it festival in Texas, but whatever their big band UIL is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we would have sectionals on their parts in that. And then, you know, once the concerts were getting closer, we would be with the band and I'd be supervising, watching over, you know, do you have enough time? Let's work on your setups and things like that. And like teaching middle schoolers how to lay out their music. So they just have to walk to the next instrument and like, mm-hmm. Lots of logistical things in those rehearsals, but yeah, it was lots of fun. And then like, you know, listening for balance and things like that, you know, making sure that they're not playing too loud. Usually the bass drummer is just getting too loud. Mm-hmm. Middle schoolers get excited once they're not on drum pads anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
if they see an, an F anywhere in the thing, it's like, oh, this is the loudest dynamic I could possibly play right now. Well, I'm going to play loud. Yeah. <laughs> Paige, do I turn my hips when I hit the drum? Do I do I get like a full batter swing? All the way back, right? It's baseball now. Yes. <laughs> When you're doing all this, what was your typical daily schedule? How much driving were you doing between the schools and were you at every school every day? Yeah. So when I first moved to Texas, I was not living where I was now. We were living in like an apartment before we got a house, which was in Irving. So that mes- that drive to Mesquite was about 30 minutes. Now my drive is about an hour, which is kind of awful. But so I would drive my hour to get to school. And in the fall, marching band meets before school. So we started marching band at 7 a.m., which was rough having to leave really early. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd have marching band for like an hour 15. And then I would go get some coffee. And then I would go to the first middle school where I would teach a class. And I'd go right to the next middle school. And then I would go to the high school for the last two periods of the day. And depending on when they needed me, so most days it was like Mondays, I just did marching band and then I would go home. Tuesdays, I would do all the schools. And then Wednesdays, I would just do the middle schools and then have the afternoon off. And then Thursdays, I would just do the high school in the afternoon. And then in those free periods, I could do lessons at the, at the other schools. And those, I thought it was weird. I mean, those had to be over Zoom. Even though I was in person with all the other kids, the one-on-one stuff had to be over Zoom. So I just had to make sure I had enough time to get home and get ready and do those one-on-one lessons. And they let all the all the schools and the grades do lessons. So I had some beginners and some seniors in high school and everything in between. It does seem like that would be the situation that would you could do in person. versus the others (laughs) yes yeah i was like you're gonna let me teach five kids in this tiny room but not one where i can be more spread out okay whatever like okay (laughs) you're paying bills sure exactly (laughs) what you say (laughs) and how what was the like the general distance between all of these different schools that you're driving to and from and how did your car make it? My car made it. It was good. Um, I actually have been sharing car with my mom because I sold my car before the boat. I was like, oh, I'm going to be able to get a new car when I get back. And then it was like, uh, yeah, only worked for like five weeks. So did not make enough to get a car. So it's been fine. There's been like a couple of days where I'm like, oh, I'm going to be late to work because oh, it was crazy. Literally the last day of work, I hit, I hit like a trash bag full of bags. Ran, I, there was nowhere for me to go. Like I was cars on both sides. I ran over this trash bag and I was like, this is making scary noises now. Um, so, but I got it. You know, they, I went to a, like an oil change place and they just like cut it out from underneath my car. So, but otherwise car has made it um, between the schools. The longest is probably 10 minute drive. They're all fairly close to each other. So just planning out like, like there was when it was between the two middle schools, I'd have to like leave one early and get to one a little bit late. Um, but for the most part, it wasn't too bad. Damn. It takes was a few minutes to set up and to pack up. So it worked out fine that I had to leave early and get up there a little late. Uh, that makes complete sense. 
uh, while you've been teaching, and obviously you, you've kind of stressed the importance of how, how important it is for you to, to keep performing. Ha, have you been able to kind of keep up with your own percussion, you know, artistic needs yeah. for yourself during this, the, during this teaching time? Yeah. When I, my first year of teaching was right after grad school and I was still in Virginia and that was really difficult because I was teaching at a high school and then also teaching at JMU. So I really felt like I didn't have an outlet to perform. And so I started using my social media and I was like, I want to do this hundred days of practice just to like make sure I at least get like 10 minutes a day of me doing something and I can record myself. And then that started to like take off. People like started following me, watching my videos. And now it's like, I do it a lot. I record a lot. Um, and I like, it's so like great to be able to like, okay, I got new recording equipment and I can take the time to like figure out a song I want to play to and like give myself that performance. And if I get a lot of likes or views, whatever, I don't really care. It's for me at this point. So it's been fulfilling to like be able to do that, like post on social media and just like get myself out as here I am. I'm trying to drum. So is there, is there a video of, of you playing uh, late in the evening? Late in the evening. Do you know that tune? Paul Simon? No, I don't know that. Tune. Oh, that's a, that's a, that's, that's my go-to. I, I don't post it on social media, but that's my, like, if I need to just sit and jam, um, it's a pretty awesome, t- it's a Steve Gadd specialty. Okay. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. That one. And, um, the other one is, uh, um, cut the cake by, uh, average white band. Don't know that one either. Oh, it's like the fun, one of the funkiest songs you're going to, okay. It's, it's just a lot of, just playing a lot of pocket, but, oh, so, okay. Yeah. Once you get off, you like listen to those, and I think you're you're gonna then we'll I'll, I'll wait. I'll just I'll check be on your social media, just waiting for you to to post those. Good. <laughs> you're going to be involved shortly with Girls March, correct? Yes, I'm super excited about that. So tell me about getting involved with that. Again, I guess it was my social media. Rachel Taylor reached out to me through Instagram and then through my website, and was like, "You." And she was also one of the judges for the Hit Like a Girl competition, which I did mm. last two years, and she was like we would love to have you on staff and also you live in Texas and it's going to be in Texas this year. So do you want to join? And I was like, of course I want to join. And so we've actually just been like getting ready and playing for all that stuff. So I'm excited because I get to write a little for that. And I'm just like an in-person marching camp. Yay. Is there, are, are there things that you're, um, that you're actually doing that's going to be part specific to the online audience? Um, or, or is it you kind of focusing mostly on, on the in-person stuff? I, right now, I believe I'm focusing mostly on the in-person, but Rachel did ask me to write for like their final performance video to write them something that they could play. So I need to get working on that. Um, but yeah, me and Eliana, who is amazing, she and I are going to work with a more advanced drum line, and then there's a couple other people that are going to do beginner, and, we, and then we get to like switch off, and so we get to see all the all of the kids. Um, but we're working on that packet now for for the camp, so I'm excited. Yeah, no, that sounds like it's going to be great. Do you know a lot of the other clinicians, or is this are you actually going to be meeting a lot of people? I know shortly? them. I don't know them. 
Um, Cause like, of course I know of Sandy Rennick, but I've never met her. And I know of Rachel and like, we've, we've talked, but I've never met her. And then team Islas never met. I've never met Patricia, but uh, I'm very excited to meet her. Um, and then there's a few that are doing virtual that I won't get to meet in person, but I'm excited to like talk to them and collaborate with them as well. Cause I know that we're all giving our own master classes, So we will all like get to interact with the virtual teachers and the students as well. Yeah. Do you know what your, your master class is? I'm going to do the do's and don'ts of auditions, kind of what to prepare for, what to expect when you go into audition. And then I personally never auditioned for drum corps, but I have a lot of friends that did. So I'm going to get their perspective, you know, kind of what things did they ask that they might've not said to you that you have to do extra that they're going to expect from you. And, you know, things about, the difference between cocky and confident and, you know, how to approach an audition and things like that. So that's good. Have you thought of a, of a, of a special section on what to do on a boat when you can't leave? Yeah, not yet, but <laughs> that was not included in the audition. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I'm looking forward to this. To, I hope that goes like super well. Um, <laughs> When you did finish your your uh, masters, were you intent like intending to stay local? Did you were you thinking, am I should I go and and try to get another get my you know my get a doctorate? What was your kind of your thought at like at that point? Oh, mix of emotions. By the end of my masters, I had looked. Casey and I made like a whole Google sheet spreadsheet about which which doctorate programs and teachers that he thought that I would work well with and all this stuff and I had narrowed it down to a few and it just came time for like auditions and I was like I definitely think I need to take a year um, at least a year off before I do this and then I decided you know I was really enjoying like growing the Jamie Drumline program because there's like a whole story behind that but we had to regrow um And so, you know, I didn't really want to leave yet. And I knew that the next year, Jamie was going to Macy's. So I wanted to be a part of that. So I stayed local. And, and then it was like, the school that I was at was not very good environment for colored people. Mm -hmm. Um, So I knew that I needed to leave that school. But at that point, I was just like, I should really this is like year seven of being at JMU. So I think I should go somewhere else and meet new people, experience other things. Here's the, so I, I do need to ask you about the, um, the Macy's experience because um, marching Mizzou, I'm the assistant director there. We yeah. just got accepted for 2022. That's amazing. So we're super excited, but, 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 um, and actually we were, I found out later we were actually accepted to go this year, but because of COVID, they kind of, everyone got bumped. Pushed back a year. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, yeah, it's like, it's, it's going to be, I'm excited, but yeah. Tell me what, what was that like? Aside from being up like at what? 11 PM the night before to get ready for the parade. So it was very stressful because there are so many people in the marching band. So learning that routine to get you, like you start at the sideline and you, you march all the way across and getting to the star 
Well, there's so many people in front of the drum line and the drum line and the dancers are supposed to be in the center. So we're like, you have to move faster. We're, they're like sprinting and like those rehearsals are so stressful. Um, just getting it like basically perfect. I mean, how many millions of people watch the Macy's Day Parade and you want to be, you want to look at your best. So, you know, getting getting that good was stressful. And then, you know, they had to learn a new cadence because they needed a shorter cadence than what we usually use. And then we needed to learn a march, which they do Robin Hood, which is just, it's a really good arrangement that they use. And then, you know, getting, it's like 15 buses for the JMU marching band. So that's like uh, absurd and making sure that they pack everything. But then you get there and it's just uh, unreal. Like, Everybody is super excited. The Macy's sign is up and like they this this time around when I was a staff member, because I did it back in 2012, 2013 when we went and, and I marched in it. And it was very different being on the other side um, and seeing like the logistical part of it. But we got like the Macy's experience. And if you were a part of the parade, you like got to go to Macy's at a special time and you got all these discounts and stuff like that that they gave us with all of the like Thanksgiving Day Parade swag and all that stuff, which is really cool because I don't remember that happening the first time we went. And then rehearsal space, we had to rehearse in our hotel. So that was hectic because you get there and you basically only get to do it one time when you get to the, the, the practice at 2 a.m. So... Yeah, practicing in a hotel is terrible because it's really loud and there's 500 people and you can't move. So we didn't even get to practice when we got to the hotel. Like, we're like, hopefully it works. But it was it was great. And then, like, you know, you you do the whole parade and you're exhausted and it's freezing. When we went, it was like the coldest Parade it had ever been, record lows, and they made us get there like two hours early because they were afraid of all the traffic because of how big the band was. So we're just standing in the cold, freezing. And then they were finally like, okay, you can line up now. And we're all like, okay, we're like frozen. Um, but then, you know, you get you get on that line and you start to go and it's just so exciting and everybody around you is screaming and and then you get to the star and then you're on TV and it's great. No, that's fantastic. The, uh, I, I, was, I was thinking like, you know, that much time, how many, how many times can you tell the brass players to keep, keep air going through your instrument? Like that day was, yes, like, yes, I know. <laughs> they were all frozen. Like, Oh, it was like, Oh no. And we had an anemic girl in the drum line. We're all like, don't, don't freeze. Like <sighs> it was scary. She was like turning purple. I was like, okay, we need to get you like a heater or something because the little things, the hot hands were not enough. Yikes. Mm -hmm. I, I assume she's okay. She's okay. Yeah, she's okay. It's <laughs> like a memory. Yeah, the memory of freezing. <laughs> No, that's 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 great. That's just the, and this is good to know. I, this, is, this is the kind of things that I need to look forward to. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, most of us just didn't sleep the, the day that we had that rehearsal because you have that rehearsal and then you're amped up after the rehearsal and then you're like, okay, we get to do it for real, like in a few hours, and then you're just ready to go the whole day. So. And the other thing, obviously, is that that's during football season. Mm -hmm. 
Did, did I, I mean, was it like you had to work this kind of stuff out while you were having to do all your football duties, right? Yeah, so this year, well, well, the year that we did it, two years ago, um, we had the, the parade on Thursday. Friday was like a free day. Saturday, we like left very early in the morning and literally just got the bus. Everybody was already in uniform and had the football game. So planning around that was like, very scary because before the football team hadn't been that good so it was like we didn't even have to worry about it they weren't going to the playoffs it was and now it's like they've had trips they've had other trips canceled because the football team made it to the national championship so like they had a, a trip planned for spain yeah it was the same weekend as national championship sorry you have to be at the game so you can't go to spain and all this stuff that we yeah, it was like very close scheduling. We were like, okay, if we lose the week before, we get to stay in New York an extra day. Oh, nope, we won. All right, so we're going on the bus early, back to the game. Pros and cons of being in a school with a good football team. Yeah. Yeah, well, and it's different because you're in what is called FCS now, right? It was like 1AA, it used to be called. Yeah. So you actually have the playoff. like you. Yeah, the whole playoff season. I think this season they only got to do one game at January where the band was allowed to be there because of COVID rules. But usually we'd be at all the games, and then they would think about sending a pep band to away games. And then national championship, it was like first come, first serve. If you are a senior, you get to go because they only allow, I think, 150 in the stands. So that was pretty limiting to how many people could go. But we were like, drumline, you have, there's only one of you on each drum. So you get to come, basically. Um, <clears throat> and then everybody else was first come, first serve based on instrumentation and things like that. And then people were mad because we couldn't do the field show. But we're like, it's only 150 people. So you get the stuff where we don't have to move around a lot on the field. So that was a lot on the national championship it was fun the second time we got to fly the first time when we had to be on the bus for 48 hours that was that was rough but is it what is it in texas yeah it's in frisco <sighs> like yeah. every year right every year yep yeah the bus stuff is is definitely the i want to go see places and i like i you know and all that stuff with the band but also i'm like i don't know that i can do my many more of these like 15 yeah. hour bus trips oh yes they're terrible yeah even on a staff bus where you can like spread out, it's still terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you can't, you know, what we have the seat that goes, that's like normal reclined, like, you know, yep. three inches back. Oh, now I can just settle in. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready to fall asleep now. Right. Yeah. This, <laughs> this has changed everything. Paige, let's back up. So you you allude you said you grew up in Maryland, Virginia area. In Maryland, so I grew up in Howard County, and mm. went to Elkett Mills Middle School, and then I went to Mount Hebron High School. Like I see Maryland in my head, mm -hmm. I, I can see what, but but where where is that? Like Central Maryland, right outside of Baltimore. So if you know kind of where Baltimore is, you're mm -hmm. just a little bit uh, west. Do you have any family members in the arts? In the arts? No. I don't know how I got the musical genes because nobody does music in my family. Yeah, My so, dad played like the flute growing up and I was like, oh, I want to play the flute. My dad played the flute. And then I played the flute reader and I was like, this stinks. I need something louder. Even though the flute is actually loud, but in the sixth grade, it's not loud. 
Right. <laughs> I was like, drums. She was like, all right, fine, here you go. <laughs> See, I had that my problem was, um, I don't know if it, when you, because you, you have an, your undergrads in ed, right? It is, yeah. The woodwind methods, I was fine mm-hmm. for most of the instruments. I played nine notes, I think, on flute in th- two and a half to three weeks. Like I couldn't, the thing just kept falling off my chin. Yeah. It was enough air into it too. And like, they'd always make us like the first week I remember we practiced on like two liter bottles. Uh-huh. I don't know. Try to get a sound out. Yeah. I could do that. Yeah. But, but I couldn't get the, the flute to just stay on under my, my mouth. Yeah. Apparently I, I'm not, apparently I think I'm the only one that that was a problem for. I've, I've realized over the years. Yeah. I think elbow and bassoon were probably the hardest for me. Like so much pressure on your face. Well, once they explain all the problems with uh, with reeds, and you're like, "Oh, that just sounds like what a what a hassle." I know. I have to buy sticks, but I, at least I don't have to make them. Like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I will spend my ten dollars as long as I don't have to make them. Great. Yeah. Does it just be by uh, middle school band? Is that how you get? I think. Drunk? We'd start actually in fourth grade there, mm-hmm. elementary school. Strings started in third grade, and they have all these like tiny little string instruments. They're so cute. And then you all, everybody had to be in choir because you all had to take general music. So you mm-hmm. all were just a part of choir. And then, yeah, fourth grade, you get to choose whatever instrument. And then fifth grade, I was like, I'm switching. And then sixth grade, sixth, seventh, eighth, that's middle school where you just have band class. And ours was like sixth grade band, and then you had like an advanced band and a middle band. So you auditioned for what you wanted to be in. And then at Mount Hebron, there's three band classes. Mm. So there's like an advanced, a middle, and then the lowest. And I think there was a beginner class as well. But the way that we did it was if you were a percussion, you had your own class and you just got rehearsed the band music in the class. But we didn't do percussion ensemble. So we kind of missed out on that aspect. We just did the band music in class. How big a part was marching at that point? Pretty large at my high school, but like it wasn't like any other marching band because we did not do shows. We were a parade band. Yeah. Which was terrible. Because <laughs> who wants to do five mile parades with a snare drum? I don't. Yeah. And right. that we did parade competitions. Now we learned a field show for like, the football games and it was just like popular music showy kind of thing but yeah the competitions were parades and so long was the field part like plug and play you'd learn like a couple sets and then you just play your play your pop tunes and then yeah like one the way that the the color guard was structured at my high school was really weird until about my senior year they were broken into the different flag categories and you only did that thing. So like they had the rifles, mm-hmm. and the swing flags, and then they had the flags until my senior year when they're like, no, color guard needs to do it all. Cause we had gotten a new director who had like new connections and things like that. So yeah, when I got there, my director was like 60 something years old, just stuck in the old, old ways of doing it. Um, yeah. And so high school was the first time I had a percussion instructor and like we had, Kevlar heads or Mylar or whatever. Like for the first time, we were like playing on like drum set heads before. Mm-hmm. So the drums are loud now and high pitched, and 
Yeah. So that was like the first time I ever even experienced what drum corps was. It was my junior year of high school. Once we got that percussion instructor, I was like, this is amazing. During this time, were you taking private lessons? Yeah. So the private, the our percussion instructor at the school was Robert Marino, who is the trumpetist mm. for the Army Field Band. And so I started taking lessons with him as well. Was he doing classical percussion or were you doing drum set? What were, what, what were you working with, with him? Yeah. When I first was like, I want to do drums, I started on drum set and I got like went to my local music and arts and started taking drum set lessons. And then I was like, once I got to like high school, I was like, okay, I need a classical percussion teacher because I'm starting to get serious and like I'm going to need to know how to do four mallets for auditions and stuff like that. So then, yeah, I started with Bobby and we did classical stuff and then marching stuff because he marched cadets and he's a huge marching guy too. So he helped me make the drum line at JMU. Where were you practicing your um, your classical percussion? At school a lot. I would just stay after school because our band director would be there until like five o'clock. So I would stay after school, practice a lot. My senior year, I like worked out this crazy schedule where I only had like two real classes, maybe three, and then I had a bunch of band classes. And so at that point, I was like, I want to be a band director. And so I did an internship with my middle school director. And so I got to like go teach middle school band with him during the day. And then I would like go back to school for wind ensemble and I could stay after and practice. I was in a lot of band classes. That's wild, though, that you actually got like teacher your um, your praxis experience basically yeah, yeah. In, in high school before I was even in college. It was amazing. Then when it was probably time for that, you're like, all right, I'm, don't, does this count? Does yeah. this count what I did? Yeah, five years ago. Credit for this. It was more than twelve weeks. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, that's that's funny. Yeah research project with that and so I I did my project on like personalities personality traits and like what instruments students tend to choose and just like seeing if there was a correlation between like the stereotypical you know oh percussionist is loud and messy and things like that and seeing like if the students thought them about themselves versus what the stereotypical things were it was really interesting and what were the results? The results were middle schoolers don't know themselves and were all over the place. But the high schoolers were pretty in line with the stereotypes. Once they had like that time to figure out who they were and they kind of like naturally fell into those. It's the kind of thing where um, I mentioned this as, as a side note. I, I remember seeing a concert um, at a conference and like a, uh, an oboe player like it was a percussion conference. So, um, but it was like an oboe player was playing something with percussion ensemble and the oboe player walked out and, and like, we all were like, that is an oboe player. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Those very specific stereotypes. Like, yes. Yeah. Type A or, you know, teacher's pet or things like that. Like, yeah, that's, they kind of, they kind of are really, you know, true. <laughs> Yeah. I, I didn't think that he had, uh, that this particular person had uh, uh, reeds just kind of hanging out his back pocket, like, you know, <laughs> drummers with their sticks have to carry around. <laughs> so. A little medicine bottle, right? Right. <laughs> yes. For later. 
while this is all going on and you're doing all this band stuff, are you doing anything else? Are you involved in like student government or church activities or sports or anything that's kind of filling out your time as well? Yeah, I played for my, I played drum set for my church. Mm-hmm. To be a part of the praise band when I was like, I started in like the eighth grade, which was amazing um, to get that opportunity to play drum set with like really like the piano player was like a prominent piano player in our area. So like to learn things from him and I was like, Oh, this is amazing. Like all of this, like taking cues from someone and like learning like that. Um, and like reading guitar charts as a way of like, okay, I guess I can write in like little things here, like to follow what I'm doing. Um, sports. I did sports until high school because with all the band, like I knew that I was music obsessed, but I played soccer and I'm actually a black belt in karate, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Taekwondo. But I dropped that once I was, like, banned. Mm. Um, And then I was in NHS, so we had, like, a lot of community service things that we had to do as a part of our, um, like, requirements for each month. You had to, like, get a certain amount of points. You had to keep a certain grade point average and things like that. Um, And then I did, like, extracurricular orchestra. They called it HSGTO. So it was, like, the Howard County GT or high school GT orchestra that like I auditioned for and and then like that's when I like played my first percussion ensemble piece was with them because you know there were plenty of orchestral pieces where we weren't playing so they let us go into a practice room and we learned I remember we did Kuka which was unreal as a high schooler to be like what is happening but that was that was really cool was that unconducted I think Kuka was conducted okay yeah yeah, it was like crazy. The four of us, like, I think three of us went to school for music and one didn't. So it was like they were just kind of doing it extracurricular and we were all good players. It was just like crazy what was going on. The honor society stuff, five hours a month or something like I can't like you're something like that to kind of fill out yeah, was, the service portion. I think it was either five or ten a month. And like they they scheduled things that you could go to, so like you could sign up to be a tutor, which there's plenty of kids that needed tutoring, so like you could fill that out really quickly, or you could like sometimes you could use your teacher eight hours if you were actually aiding the teacher, um, as that. Um, and then like we had a canned food drive that you could work at, or like I know that one of the elementary schools had like a like a not like a secret Santa, but it was like a shop that they would set up in the cafeteria and we had like a bunch of donated gifts and kids could come and buy that for their parents. Um, and you could work that and get your NHS hours and stuff like that. So how do you end up at JMU? My sister had applied there. And at that point I was like, I need to be in a marching band. So I knew Greg Salikis who was at Towson at the time. So mm-hmm. I at Towson and then I basically just like went to YouTube to find marching bands and I found JMU and I was like, whoa, this is amazing. Look at all the people on the field. Um, And then I applied to a couple other schools out of state. I was basically like, I need to get out of Maryland. So, Um, and then, yeah, I found that and I went and I met with the teachers there. It was Bill Rice and Michael Overman at the time. And they were hilarious and I was like okay I'm auditioning here and like that first tour we had like the perfect day it was gorgeous outside and all the students were on the quad and I was like yeah I need to go here yeah and then I auditioned in February and I got in and I was like sweet 
<laughs> yeah, Harrisonville's not bad, actually. Harrisonburg? Yes, that place, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course. That's what I said. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really cute town. Yeah. When you, when you stay in the town, it's a, it's a good area. I mean, you're not, and you're not too far from, you know, there's like the mountains are right there. And, and Nova, uh, Northern Virginia is not too far. DC's not too far. Right. Orlitzville's like right down the road. There's lots of, lots of things to do right around that area. Yeah. How long were you, did you take under Bill Rice? Three years under Bill Rice. Okay. So he, he retired my junior year and then he became my senior year. Okay. And then AC and Moral through grad school as well. So I've mm-hmm. seen them for three years. Yeah, he was, I mean, he was there for... Ever. Ever. Yeah, ever. <laughs> <laughs> he was amazing, though. He was just like the grandpa you wish you had. Kind of scary at times. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, no. He was, uh, he, he could, he was pretty hardcore on... <laughs> yeah stickler about a lot of things and he's because his was it was timpani his main well that's what main... that's what you you thought right but then uh-huh. like look at all these old things and he's just like this gnarly snare drum player and you're like where is this bill like he's so like anti-traditional now and like you know you encourage people to do marching band and dci but like also you you don't want them to make that their lives which makes sense but um, I'm just like, you're so, you're so different. I, you know, not that I didn't like Bill, um, in where he was when I worked with him, but I would love to see him like ripping on a marching snare. When you're taking, uh, from him, do you know, are you, does, is he making it clear that he may be like wrapping up before you're done? Freshman year, I did not get that impression. Sophomore year, I did because, Sophomore year was like the first time we did this humongous percussion concert where it was like we had the choir involved, we had the brass band involved, and we're like, okay, is this his retirement concert? Like, is this the last big shebang? And then the next year he was still there, he didn't retire, but it was like he was ready to go. And he was like, he announced it like the first week, so he's like, yeah, I'm retiring. So that whole year was just like still retiring. Awesome. Like not awesome. Like we wanted to leave, but he was he was just like in retirement mode, mm-hmm. ready to go. And then we put on another concert where we used like part of the music from the last year's concert, like Jesus Christ Superstar for Professional Ensemble and Choir. It was hilarious. And we did these like crazy Bella Fleck tunes where the sax professor came on and like it's it's a moment I will never forget. He comes out and he's like, I'm gonna do a little solo in the beginning. And so we're all standing there, like, okay, and he rips like a six-minute solo, and we're just like, what is happening? <laughs> and then he's like, okay, let's go. And then we played the tunes, and we were just like, that was insane. <laughs> it was like, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna solo for a little, and then it was like, <laughs> okay, that was a little, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> can we go? Like, can we can we get off stage for a bit? Stage, yeah. Like, we were looking around. Like, he's still going. <laughs> Song remains the same. The Led Zeppelin movie when they when John Bonham starts playing Moby Dick, and then the other three guys go off stage and like start lighting up cigarettes, like as they're walking off. And 
because they know it's going to be like 15 minutes before they're going to be needed again. Back, yep. When you're there, how much are you studying? Like, in, in, this is still with Bill, but were you studying entirely with with him? Were you studying with Mike Overman? Were you because I and I think there's another. There were another, like one or two other adjunct yeah, people, right? Martin Foster, who right. actually this year. Okay. He's the drum set teacher, but he also worked with like half of the freshmen. Well, they would just assign it. It was differently assigned every semester. So usually you would do one hour a lesson a week. And so what they would do was generally freshman and sophomore year, you were split 30-30 between two teachers. And they kind of just picked who they wanted for that semester. So like how it broke down is I was doing more drum stuff with Bill and then I was doing um, more mallet things with Dr. Overman. And then after junior year and you like started prepping for recitals and stuff, then you get one hour lessons and they also just choose who they want. So then you do everything with them. But they have like, at least when I was there, they had a pretty strict like curriculum in lessons. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's like that with Casey. Um, I mean, I'm sure that there's some stuff that they have to check off, but for us, it was like, you had to check off this and this whole book you had to get through. You had to get through this whole book. You had to get through all of portraits and rhythm and like, and then you had to play through all of Della Clues. And, and so it was a lot of just like, okay, checking off these solos every week. Is it like the rubric, mm. like follow this, like this is your, everyone will play, you know, selections 31 through 38 <laughs> in Portraits of Rhythm, you know, over these two weeks or something like that. Or... It was like you went at your own pace. Okay. So you, he sent out like over the summer before I got there, he was like, you need these books. Mm. You're going to play all of these books. Um, and then whatever you learned in that week, you like checked off. Mm. So like if I was feeling like good that week, then I like got through like three snare solos and a mallet solo. Awesome. Because uh, we were working out of the the Zivkovich, the funny, funny, mallet. funny mallet books. Yes, we had the two mallet and the four mallet we had to get through the whole two books. And then we also had to go through all the Goldenberg etudes. I mean, it was like oh, so much to check off. But uh, obviously it, it was worth it in the end. Like it might've been monotonous in the time, but yeah. better now. Yeah. Yeah. After the fact, you're like, that was totally worth it. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I'm doing the same thing now. Like with some of my kids, I'm like, we're doing Goldenberg etudes, <laughs> but we're going to do it. It'll make you better. What was the switch like to, to then go to Casey? Bill was in retirement mode um, all of my junior year. So that switch was like like a light bulb. It was like night and day between the two because Casey is super like super schedule. Like he would write everything out, which was great. Um, and also just like obviously ambitious about a new job. Like and so – you know, it was it was a it was it was interesting to get used to him because he's he's just so different than Bill. Very like, I don't want to say like free spirited, but like just he's more out there than Bill was. And so like I remember our first concert, we like built these giant rain sticks and we did a rain stick improvisation, which is like nothing I would have ever done under Bill. And so it was just like getting used to him. Um, but it was great. 
And like, it was so amazing that he's at JMU now because he's like unreal and doing some amazing things there. Yeah. I mean, he's the one that pushed me to start like recording and like, because like none of us really did that under Bill because he wasn't recording himself playing anymore. He was just teaching. And so to have someone that's also really involved as a performer, it was like, it motivated all of us to like want to get out there and perform and record and put stuff out there on the internet. And what kind of stuff were you playing? Did you end up doing for recitals for undergrad? My senior recital, I did tap oratory, which was by Casey. And it was cool because he played it with me on my recital. So everybody was like, Hmm. Um, and I did Kaleidoscope uh, with my friend Matt Rapaco. And then Bobby Marino, he actually wrote me a piece. And it was also, it was a multi-duet, kind of like 9 over 3, 8 over 2. Or I think that's the other one. Yeah, it was kind of like that. Lots of instruments, splitting, drums and stuff like that. I played Ella Babella McMella Barbarella, I believe, by Bobo. Oh, okay. <laughs> that sounds like it would be a Bobo title. Yeah, it was amazing. It was a, it was dedicated to, uh, I think it's... His daughter? Dave Hall's daughter. <gasps> oh, I, yeah, okay. I believe it was Dave Hall's daughter. And so, yeah, like, actually Dave Hall had come. He was one of the finalists for the JMU job. So, like, mm-hmm. we him. And I was like, oh, you played this piece. Like, is it available to purchase? And he's like, not yet, but... I will talk to Kevin. And so I like got to play it early, which is amazing. <laughs> um, but it's like just fast and crazy and just like, like a four-year-old running around basically. Mm-hmm. So a standard Bobo marimba piece. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was great. I played Get It by Gene Kuzinski with my bassoon friend. Mm. So I think that was, yeah, that was my whole senior recital. My master's recital was so different. But that was like, you know, two more years of working with Casey and Laurel and like definitely like changing my playing and like my approach to the instruments and stuff like that. So well, how so? They're very well, at least Laurel is very Alexander technique. Mm-hmm. I am very short. So like watching her play and like seeing her wingspan, like when she has to get low and like learning how to do that and just like being able to like not be a robot and be more expressive because they're both very expressive and kind of learning, like having many conversations with Casey about like getting in performance mindset and like what you think about what that means to you. Um, Talking a lot about like what you want that piece to portray to the audience, things like that. So I like did a lot of different music, you know, there was a time where I was like, Oh, I think I could do the orchestral thing. And so like we drilled excerpts, and I went to TAPS that summer and I got second place. So it was like, okay, maybe. But then I was like, I don't want to learn these anymore. Never mind. <laughs> Look at this. I don't want to perfect these. Never mind. Um, but that was an amazing experience going to TAPS. And then, yeah, then my master's recital, I played Time for Marimba, which was like whew, nothing I'd ever played before. Mm. Um and then I played another KCP seance, which is a multi-duet. And then I played Ben Wallen's Pegasus, which was fun. And then Gene Kaczynski's Swerve. And I think that was it. There might have been something else. It's been a while. Mm-hmm. When you were wrapping up your your undergrad, which was in uh, Ed. Yeah. 
you already thought you already knew that you wanted to spend more time learning under Casey. Was that kind of like to, to, to go ahead and get the second degree or you weren't ready to? Well, honestly, I was kind of like wanting to do the Hollywood thing and try to play for movies. Oh, okay. And I didn't even want to apply to JMU. Mm-hmm. I applied to Ted school in law in Long Beach and mm-hmm. then UC Riverside, not Riverside. Uh, another one in California. I was like, if I want to do this, I need to move to California. One of the composition professors, uh, Eric Ginevin, had connections in California. So he was like, well, if you go out there, here's some connections and stuff like that. Um, And then I was just like prepping. Like my last jury was just doing my audition stuff. And so I was prepping all this stuff one day and Casey's like, hey, I think you should apply to go here. I was like, okay. Have one day to get the application in, but okay. So I did it that night and I applied for JMU and then it was like just a whirlwind after that. It was like, oh, there's an assistantship available. Oh, we're going to offer to someone else. And I was like, oh, that person turned it down. Do you want this? And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Free college. Or yes, I will stay then. So then, you know, after getting that, it was like, okay, that is one thing that I did want to do more was to stay and study with Casey longer because I only had him for not even a full year because I student taught I mm. a semester, really. You didn't get into the other schools? No, I or? did, but okay. it, was, it wasn't a full assistantship. So free school beats not free school and paying for things in California is way more expensive than Harrisonburg. So And out of state, too. Yep. <laughs> and out of state. Yeah. But the, the assistantship was to work with a merchant band. So it was like I had been drumming during my senior year. So I'd gotten fairly close to the staff. Mm-hmm. And so making that switch was very easy because I already knew them and I knew how they worked and kind of functioned. Because as a drum major, you see like the behind the scenes more. And so it was, it was kind of perfect to just stay and keep working with them. And then I got like the opportunity to write more and to teach that drum line, which was awesome. Next thing I was thinking about was what was the, what ways were you, were you involved with the line? Like on a regular basis, were you writing? Yeah. All that stuff. Yeah. yeah. So when I was. And, and does, and does, I'm sorry, does JMU have a front ensemble? Yeah, they do. Okay. Yeah, they do. So they have the full, they have a full percussion section there. Um, so my senior, when I was drum major, we were working on a show and Scott, who's the director was like, do you want to write show too? And I was like, OMG. Yes, I do want to write this. That would be amazing. So that's when I first started writing and I feel really bad because it was probably terrible. Like I had to learn, I had no idea how to write for a symbol line yet. And it was just, it was just pop tunes. So it wasn't like anything crazy, but I'm sure that they were like bored about these beats. Um, and then it was the next year when I started being an assistant, grad assistant, that they were like, okay, you were kind of in charge now. Um, there was three other staff members at the time, and but they didn't all write. So it was like, okay, you can write the exercises and you can write the cadence. And oh yeah, you can write one of the shows. So I was like writing so much all at once, which was great because then I could like and it was great at that time because it was like I could give it to them and they we could play through it and then I could make changes and I could like learn on the go um, about writing for that. So, yeah, it was it was easier. I felt like it was easier to write for the front ensemble than it was 
for the battery at first because I was like, oh, I see, I can see the flute melody and I can like adapt it and stuff like that. But with the, the drumline, you're like making everything up. When you were there, still kind of pop tune based. Or did you do anything? Usually the show, they, they break it up. They have two or three shows there. So like show one is generally more serious music. Um, and then show two is like more pop, pop stuff. But it really depends on the year. Like when I wrote my first year, we did like Fire Dance, which was a serious tune. And the Boston Brass came and they like played with the marching band. And it was it was crazy um, having them there. And, you know, they've played stuff like Time. And, you know, that's, I guess, would be more poppy. But the way that they arranged it was not. But they, they did like, we did like a Russian show. So we had Russian sailors dance. And which was hilarious because they wanted a tambourine feature. So it was like the tuba solo and the cymbal line all picked up tambourines. And they had like tambourine choreography and splits and stuff like that. It was amazing. <laughs> I was like, okay, you're playing some tambourine this year, cymbal line. And they're all like, why? <laughs> why? <laughs> this was not included in the audition. There you go. The dudes in the audition for making a circle. Like did you have them? Did you have them pull up one symbol and the tambourine and just kind of try to work something out, or you? No, we made them run to the front line and drop the symbols, <laughs> pick up the tambourines and run back, and then they had to run. It was it was hilarious. <laughs> you know, I, one of the things that's I think a challenge. I mean, I think you 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 know this having having written as much as you have now. Is that the is that it's a it's actually a real art form to write really well pop tunes mm-hmm. for for marching band for the the drumline stuff because you still need to have like a nice to like it still needs to groove right and then it can't be boring exactly you have to have a like happy medium of like groove but also like ooh, a little spice in there but it's like. You know, and then we had the other, the, our other percussion arranger, his name's Jameson Carr, and he'd been writing there for like ever. Mm-hmm. Got like stuff on tap space and stuff like that. And I'm just like, you have perfected the JMU pop way of writing because he, he just like knows, he's like, groove, all right, fill, a little fine ensemble feature, fill, you know, things like that. He's just like, got it down. You did your undergrad, you do your master's, and obviously it's one thing because it's Casey, because it's two different teachers, but what else feels different about being a, a grad student at the same place that you were did your undergrad? Yeah, I think mentally it was I was so much harder on myself as a grad student because I didn't want to be like seen as an undergrad anymore because I wasn't I wasn't and but I had all these friends that were still there. I knew the whole studio already. Um, but I think a lot of my role with Casey was because I was there for so long he like relied on me a lot about how do we do things here like logistical things in that way and so like that was kind of like my role as a grad student and obviously I had kind of started to remove myself from the drumline people because I was drum major so I had that year off of not being in the drumline and then to be able to go back as a staff member I think there were there were some personality clashes but for the most part it was like they could see me in a different light. Like once we were like running auditions and like, you know, we're playing my beats and then like 
instructing, then they were like, okay, we, we got the switch. So not, why are you talking? Oh, you're talking to me. This is actually your position. You've earned, you've earned this position. That's, that's. And there were definitely people that were like, why did you stay? And I was like, well, it was free. If it wasn't, if it wasn't offered to me, like clearly the teachers that offered it to me thought that I had earned it. So like, why are you getting on my case? Right. <laughs> okay, take it up with Casey. Then, like, don't get mad at me. <laughs> that I'm <still> here. <laughs> this is not my problem. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of things are my problem. This one isn't. Tell me about going to Taps. Like, what was that? And when? At, at what point did you go there? It was after my first year of grad school, so 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went to the Taps East Coast up in Maine which was cool because we were on like this music campsite that Ted had gone to when he was younger. I don't remember which campsite, but we were like right on a lake, which was gorgeous. And basically it was, we had like one-on-one lessons. It was Sean Tilburg, Ted Akats, and George Nixon. And they had broken it up to like, we're going to do percussion ensemble pieces and we're going to do one-on-one lessons. And then, oh yeah, there's this mock audition where they had sent out months and months ago the list. And basically it was like, you're going to send in a video audition first so you get accepted into this camp. Um, but there were people that opted to not do the audition, but they still like had to learn them to get into the camp. And then I guess that was a way for them to decide who got like scholarships to the camp. So like I got a scholarship from, I think it was Dynasty, that like helped pay for my camp to go, or maybe it was Mapex. I think it was maybe it was Mapex. It was one of the drum companies that helped me get a little scholarship to go to, to Taps. And then we got there and we had our like one-on-one lesson. So I had one with Ted and I had one with Sean, and we like worked on. Basically, they all play them very differently, even though they're all the same. So it was like how to bring yourself out in those excerpts, but also play it like a robot as well. Um, and then we, we, it was good and bad because then like from one time of like listening to how we did it, they like knew who was playing. So we did the mock audition and they literally knew like it was me or it was whoever else. And I was like, oh, dang it. <laughs> they were like, can you do that again and not slow down at the end? I was like, dang it. You <laughs> talked about this in our lesson. Um, so it was like, I think it was like 10 of us and only like four or five of us made it to the second round. So then they picked all the excerpts that they had to pick for the first round. And then it was cool. I won a drum. So first place won crash cymbals and I won a snare drum. And then third place won a tambourine. So it was good. Good time. That's great. I've heard, I've not seen Ted like perform and talk, but I've heard from many people that like he has the best sense of timing He's unreal. <laughs> That's what I've heard. It's <laughs> like, what? What was really cool, though, was we got to go to the Vic Firth factory. Mm. Part of the camp. And I was like, this is so cool. See how it's all made. And, like, there were certain rooms you could have your phone out. And certain rooms they were like, uh-uh, this is our secret. Put it away. But just to, like, see that, to go through the factory. You're also, you're a Vic Firth artist, right? Have you gone to the factory? I haven't. I've... I've- did, now, did you go when they moved into the new space? 
We went right when I don't I don't think it was a new space up in yep. Maine. I know that Z, they had a new space for Zildjian mm-hmm. in Massachusetts. I believe they said it was, but yeah, we didn't. We were we were up in Maine, so we went to whatever the big one was there. Okay. No, I definitely want to go. I've heard it's pretty awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. And like to see some of the, I mean, you, you, you like see these colored sticks and you see the dips and all that stuff, but you don't see like how that is really made. And it's just like a person that like works these machines and it like drops the sticks in and like they know they, I mean, those people are just so skilled at what yeah. they do and like people like hand making mallets and stuff. I'm like, that is unreal. This is. <laughs> yeah. Dude, you see now you're making me want to go. This is good. This is good. Yeah, good. You should you should go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, Paige, I finished up with a segment called Random Ask Questions. Okay. Uh, first question is: What's an issue in percussion education? Or you could can you could also talk about percussion performance, but an issue that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts. Not that this isn't everywhere, but it seems very prevalent being a female in percussion is all the mansplaining. I I don't need you to explain this to me. And like, of course, like, you know, I put myself out there with all of my social media videos, but like the guys that comment like, pretty good for a girl. It's like, what does my gender have anything to do with my skill? Mm -hmm. So, you know, or like, you know, I'll get messages about, well, you shouldn't take your pinky off the stick and I'm like you're a high schooler I think I know thank you like you don't need to mansplain this to me like I do have a master's degree I I like you know right that gets under my skin just like my gender means nothing in in terms of my playing so like yeah if you want to give me real feedback as a player great I will take that I will always take and be you know if it's constructive criticism but like if you're just trying to explain something to me or just like telling me i'm pretty good for a girl it's like i don't want to hear that that's always one of those elements that i i certainly have have i've heard from others who have said who have it's like being a woman who's trying to be like actively on social media and you just know that there's this like wall of garbage (laughs) that's just part of the deal like it's not yeah i know i mean i remember it was like a few months ago that drumio came out and we're like we are not taking this anymore because it was like they had posted a video of a female and there all these guys were just like pretty basic like oh pretty basic beats and it's like uh are you on drumio i don't think so so uh okay like let her be like she's playing she is like all these followers on TikTok and all this stuff. She's doing it on social media. And you're just there being like, oh, basic. It's like, oh my gosh, just stop. Like, yeah. Appreciate that she keeps good time and plays the drums well. Like, right. We will accept those comments endlessly. Yeah. Uh, com- combined, it's funny because the, the how you answer that is actually uh, quite was going to be my next question. But I I want you, if you wouldn't mind tying this into also being a person of color um, in these spaces, kind of some of kind of go wherever you want. Honestly, on that because you brought this up earlier about you kind of had a side note where you said there was a place that I was teaching that I had to get out of. 
So where where I was teaching um, before was honestly scary. I was the only person of color on the entire staff. Students were allowed to wear Confederate flag sweatshirts. Just like I went to the admin and they didn't care about my opinion at that point. So I was like, I can't stay here. Um, and, you know, I feel like more in music and someone that got an assistantship and got a scholarship um, in undergrad was always told, well, you just got it because you're black. Or was told like, well, you're like the token like they have to have certain amount of diversity points. So like, that's why you got it and things like that. And like, it's definitely hard, but at the same point, if I keep getting these scholarships and these offers, like it, me for myself, it's like, I have to take the time to be like, it's not because of my skin color. It is because of my playing and all of the hours that I put in. So there's, you know, there's always haters, like you said. So being a female that already has those haters plus person of color, it's a lot but, you know, I have a community and like I have teachers that I could always talk to. Like Casey was always open to talk about anything that I was feeling. Um, you know, if I was down on myself about something like he would always give me words of encouragement. Like I'm teaching a camp later this year. And I'm like, you know, there's some pretty bigger names than me. Like, obviously, I'm like, you know, just starting to really get my performance career going. But like Sarah Thar is teaching at the camp. And he was always he was just like yeah, just do like a prep run with JMU, like, you know, and so, yeah, it's about having a good support system and like not letting the haters get under your skin. I wonder, um, do you, um, because I mean, one of the other parts of this is just that there's, there's really, at least in, in like college circles, Mm -hmm. there's not, there's very few African-American women. Yeah. In percussion spaces. That's why I'm super excited to do this girls' march camp because, like, most of my students, even here in Texas, are people of color. And so they need that representation. A lot of the staff for girls' march is people of color. Um, And so not only do we want to feel like we can be successful as women in percussion, but, you know, again we want that representation for, for girls and young musicians that see someone of color, like being a classical musician or a marching musician, or like me, I did not go to a historically black college. So the way that I play is different than the way that like Jamise, who's one of the other teachers plays. And so to have that representation along both spectrums is really important. Oh yeah. Like you don't have to be black and, and go to a historically black college and like play like Ralph Nader. Like you can play however you want to play. Had you at, at any point, just because you, you kind of made this last point, had you at any point considered going to an HBCU? I did not. And okay. that probably had to do a lot with my up, like my upbringing. Like I was not very in touch with my African side. Um, just because of my parents were divorced and I lived mostly with my, the white side of my family. And so, you know, I went to a diverse school, but it was never like really talked about. And so, you know, that was even after like you watched the movie drumline and it was still, it was kind of something that I think 
I would have not fit in. I would have been like hesitant or afraid to go to a school where people are very in touch with that side. They know all of this, their history and like, obviously not all of their history, but they're more in touch with that part of themselves. And so I, I did not go to a school that was super diverse because of that. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, like in terms of the, like that, like the way you've explained it, that makes, I, I understand now. Yeah, I, I totally, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. I'm laughing like, you know. Yeah. A lot of mixed people have this almost identity crisis a lot of times. Just, just like, am I white enough? Am I black enough? Kind of thing. And it's like, I don't, I don't know. I'm just me. And, you know, people are going to say, well, you're not black enough. Or you're going to say you're not white enough. And it's like, well, okay. But I'm just going to do what I'm comfortable with, you know. The thing I, I think something that always jumps in when you when you when someone discusses this is thinking about how much mental space and time does that take up for you thinking about it? Or is it something that you're able to, for the most part, I can focus on the like the things I really want to do without. I don't know how much headspace it takes up for me, but that's because okay. it's also not something that I. You know, until it's brought up, usually I, it's not something I like to think about continuously like if someone makes a comment that i'm not black enough it's like well maybe i should you know have an internal crisis at some point i don't know like i'll figure out you know i did like one of those ancestries and like to find out where i was from and all that stuff but so many questions you know still and what my grandma would like lie about what we were. She was like, "We are, we are part Native American." And then I took an ancestry. I was like, "That is a lie." So how can I really know if she doesn't know? Like going asking my family members. Yeah, gotcha. All right. Well, we'll get to some other uh, questions. Not not as serious. Um, what is something you're an all time great at, but you're you would never be able to get paid for it? I'm pretty good at Mario, but I don't think I would be good enough. Like, I'm pretty good for my family and my friends, but I am not good enough to do any sort of competition. I play my Switch way too much now because of COVID, but I'm definitely not good enough for any sort of real competition in that area. I never played Twitch. Switch. I'm sorry. Twitch is a surf. No, I, this is it's too old to, to remember any of this stuff now. But uh, but a friend of ours brought brought a switch with her, and we were playing. Um, oh, what is the name? It was it was a game. It was it's a, a kitchen cooking game. Overcooked. Yes, Overcooked Two. Actually, I am. Like, going fast enough. I get so frustrated <laughs> or like anxious about games like that. I'm like, no, no. No, no, no. <laughs> You're like yelling at other people because they're not going fast enough. Like, cook it faster! Yeah. It's on fire! <laughs> you have burnt it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll remake it now. That takes all this time. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. I mean, it was fun, but it, but it was frustrating for a long time. Our go-to on the boat, because we all like had switches and we would like connect them and stuff. We would play so much Mario Kart and so much Mario Party. We just like 
constant just like playing that game. <laughs> gotcha. All right. Next one. Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? I don't know. Um, I would say probably my best friend. Her name is Lindsay. Uh, she's probably got some pretty good impressions of me. And I'm a very goofy person. And I'll also just say some weird stuff. And she'll like say it to me at a later time. And I'm like, did I really say that? <laughs> yeah. And you sounded ridiculous. <laughs> or like, like Scott has a pretty good one of me. When I was a drum major, I used to say it geeks or that geeks just when something was funny and he would say it back at the worst times, like dark humor ways. And mm. I would are you using it in the wrong way? He's like, I'm just doing what you do. <laughs> that's that's good. Mm-hmm. Nice. All right. What is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? Great movie, even though this is so bad that I absolutely love this movie, is White Chicks. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> Worst movie is Elf. I hate Elf. And a lot of people will fight me over it. Oh! I hate Will Ferrell. I will watch Step Brothers, and that's about it. Wow. I think Elf is so stupid. Oh. <laughs> no. I know. I get a lot of hate for that one. Oh, deserved, honestly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. That, like, that, oh, that, that struck deep on that one. <laughs> Although he did say stepbrothers, stepbrothers is pretty is pretty hilarious. Yes, it is. Yeah, there was a lot of when when White Chicks came out. Uh, there was a a segment on the Academy Awards because that year Chris Rock hosted it, mm-hmm. and and he went around and he was he went to the Magic Johnson Theater in Los Angeles and like asked everybody there if they had seen like any any of the 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 Oscar move the movies that were nominated for Oscars. And nobody and nobody had seen any of them. And then he's like, "Have you seen White Chicks?" And everyone was like, "Hilarious!" Like they they had all seen it. <laughs> it's too good. It's too good. It's just such a ridiculous concept. Yeah, I mean, all of their movies are ridiculous concepts, but they but they work. They do. Yeah. Your worst job growing up. I worked at Music and Arts, and it was easy at first because I was like a sales temp. So we were only brought in like for rental season. Mm. We just basically filled out the contracts and that was easy. But then they wanted to keep me on. Um, And then I was like in competition with these guys that work there full time trying to get commission as a senior in high school. And I was like, this is terrible. This is awful. Like, I don't want to be in competition with this 50 year old man trying to sell these guitars all day. And like, you know, bringing the numbers down because I only worked part time. It was so stressful. It was awful. So that part was, it was like so easy as the rental temp. And then I was like, this is terrible as a real job. (laughs) What is your biggest kitchen mess up? Well, it's not mine. It's my brother's, which is pretty funny. But we were making mac and cheese one day and he decided uh, that he didn't need to add water. And then it caught on fire. Yeah, it was like one of those like microwavable ones. Oh yeah. There was no water added and the thing like caught on fire in the microwave and we were just like, "Oh my gosh, how do you not It says add water in very big letters." <laughs> <laughs> how do you not notice? 
Um, but I've, I've, I've burnt plenty of cookies. My mom is a huge Christmas cookie maker. Mm. Like 20 different types of cookies we do. And we like give them out to like the community and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and so many cookies are burnt. Yeah. I mean, you could, they, they're still edible. I mean, like, let's not go crazy. Right? Well, there's that, <laughs> that black <laughs> Now, growing up in Maryland, in, or do you have a sports fandom? I mean, not really. I guess, like, well, I do like the Orioles, even though they're trash. They're absolute trash. But they're trying to be trash on purpose, and it's stupid, and it's annoying. Because they want the first round pick or whatever. So it's going to be bad for like the next how many years. Um, and my brother played baseball. So we had season tickets to the Orioles. So I went to a lot of Orioles games growing up. But like, even though I went to a pretty big football school, I like don't care about football. So whole family is huge Ravens fans, but I really don't care. And like basketball, like we had the Wizards. So mm-hmm. yeah. I don't really care about that either. <laughs> also, mostly ne- not good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Do uh, Favorite book? Uh, I actually, because of COVID, was reading a lot. And so when I got to reread The Color Purple, that was like unreal. And then I got, like, I was looking up musicals on Broadway and like looking up, and then I found out my dad got to see it with Jennifer Hudson that when they did the revival, I was like, what? How did you not bring me? That is annoying. But yeah, rereading that book was really great this summer. Or Pat last summer. It's been, I, I think I read it in high school. Wow. I don't know why. Like, I mean, I liked it, yeah. but I, I didn't get it. I mean, it was too, like, I didn't, I didn't understand it. Yeah. Um, I just remember that the, that the, the, the cool thing is that the format is letters. Mm-hmm. So it's like, so it feels like it's easy to read. Right. But yeah. deeper into what's happening. But. Exactly. And I think it was really, I was like in a different headspace after the George Floyd stuff. And so like reading that was like, it was heavy, but also like needed. It was good. And then I could watch the musical on, on YouTube, which mm-hmm. I shouldn't have done, but I did. Now, was that with uh, Cynthia Revo? Mm-hmm. She's yeah. unreal. Yes. And then I went down that rabbit hole and like found her TED Talk and like, so amazing. Yeah. I could go on and on about Cynthia Rebo. Uh I so I was my wife and I were lucky enough to see to see it with her. Not and Jennifer Hudson had already left yeah. um on Broadway like weeks before. My family's from New York, so I go so oh, you have that in for the Broadway plays then. Right. <laughs> when she did what's the the big number? The first thing was that that whole cast was in. It was the best cast I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, just like top to bottom, like everybody was amazing. I'm here. That's the song. Yep. The well, there's one thing that was weird about it, which was that there was a woman who was sitting like two seats for. I might have been sitting next to her, who was like so into the. She, fortunately, she wasn't singing during the thing. But she knew everything, and she was just, like, moving up and down in her chair. And I'm, like, trying not to, like, you know, I'm trying to, like, tunnel vision. Like, I do not need to see this. But she was so into it. But it was literally a showstopper. I mean, it was, like, two minutes of applause. I'm sure. And it was, I mean, it was, yeah, it was mind-blowing. 
Um, <laughs> but but yeah, the, the the rabbit hole thing is interesting because she just did this um, the Aretha Franklin thing that's on Hulu, this series right. Cynthia Riva did, and um, and she did an interview with uh, with uh, Trevor Noah on the Daily Show where she was talking about it, and she just like in the midst of conversation sings like multiple versions of um, Border Song. Like she's like the Elton John version and then into the Aretha Franklin version and then like continues on with the sentence. And it's awesome because Trevor Noah's like, I'm sorry, wait a minute. I'm not, I'm supposed to act like that didn't happen. Like you just didn't blow my mind and then acted like that was nothing. So talented. Yeah. Yeah. Um, My best uh, one. I'm sorry. I'm going to just keep talking about Cynthia Reba. I hope that's cool. Um, but the uh, there's a video of when Prince died. I don't know if you've seen it when she, they're singing Purple Rain. I think maybe. It's in her Purple Rain. But it's great because it's the comparison between her and and Jennifer Hudson. Oh. I and it's see. like, it's it's to me, it's like, okay, I'm sorry, Cynthia Erivo. <laughs> I'm taking that. I'm taking her. That is crazy. But Cynthia is like. Yes. It's like mind-blowing. It is, it is mind-blowing, for sure. All right. Uh, let me ask you some more questions before I took over as the uh, um, answering all these questions. Um, all right. What is uh, either the strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? This was just a weird piece that we did where it was crazy because Nate Smith was there. Mm. And he was like there was the jazz ensemble concert i was not in the jazz ensemble um but i was like a ringer for that concert and i played this piece where i played boom whackers the whole time in a jazz ensemble and i was like this is weird i like and you couldn't even really hear me because they're boom whackers or a jazz ensemble so i was like this is I'm, okay i'm here for the ride <laughs> I mean, There's I'm, Nate Smith. <laughs> and I was like, Nate Smith is crazy, but also like, I'm playing boom markers next to Nate Smith. Wow. <laughs> well, that's probably the weirdest. <laughs> it's like, how far up the CV does that need to go? Probably pretty high. Pretty high. You know? Yes. Boom markers, Nate Smith. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. And lastly, Paige, what one piece of art could be music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything, etc. has impacted you the most recently. There is a Tina Turner documentary on HBO. <gasps> I have not seen it. I've heard it's go watch it. So my sh- my gig that I just did in New Jersey was called Beehive, which is an all 60s musical all females again and we had a tina turner section and it wasn't like a formal assignment but they're basically like you need to watch this and to see i mean that is it is very sad but to see how she can come through and get out of all the bad places and still make music and be such an incredible role model for people and to uplift black artists and all of that through all the stuff that she went through I'm just like, oh my goodness. Like if someone with that, that all of those hardships can make it like, I am living easy because 
you know, I get to do what I love and I don't have all the crazy stuff going on. But yeah, I would recommend watching that ASAP. Anytime I I teach a jazz pop and rock course and uh, anytime I show Tina Turner stuff, everyone's always just in a better place after. <laughs> yeah, I know. The music is incredible. Like that was probably one of my favorite parts of the show was doing the Tina medley. And then we had what songs? Movie. What songs were in the medley? In medley, we had River Deep, Mount High, which I was like, "This is one of my that's favorites. my favorite." Yes, I was so excited. Did you have the bongo part? No, I played Kit. So okay, there was no bongo. It was just <sighs> very minimal. It was just sure. that for me. Um, no other percussionist either, because COVID, they had a really small band. Sure. Um, but we did that, and then we did like we did Proud Mary, but it went right like the whole Proud Mary, like the whole her talking and the slow, uh, really great groove behind it while she's talking about we're gonna start slow. And I was like, oh, it's so great. And the person, her name was Stacy, that did it online. She was unreal. So those were the only two in the medley because River Deep came back later. Such a pleasure getting the chance to talk to Paige. I look forward to catching up with her in person very soon. And I really hope that the Girls' March experience is excellent. As we concluded our interview, Paige reminded me that I needed to watch the recent HBO documentary, Tina, on Tina Turner. And I just got to see it. So, this week's rave is the 2021 documentary, Tina, directed by Daniel Lindsay and TJ Martin and currently streaming on HBO Max. I have long been a massive Tina Turner fan. I grew up in the 1980s during the major solo phase of Tina Turner's career and was just about the right age when her Private Dancer album came out, including the mega-hit, What's Love Got to Do With It? So I recall that part of her career when it happened, but was not completely aware of how she got to that point. I mean, she was a 45-year-old woman who was suddenly topping the charts, winning awards, and singing in stadiums all things she'd wanted to do her entire career. As I mentioned the page, I get to talk every semester about Tina Turner when I co-teach Mizzou's jazz pop and rock class, so watching all of her clips is always a great time. This documentary is good for so many reasons. Among them, one, Tina Turner opens up both through current and past interviews about her past with Ike Turner and lays the groundwork for why that 16-year relationship was so difficult. She makes it very clear that it remains an extremely traumatic experience, and she really dislikes talking about it. Two, the documentary, while not excusing Ike's tortured conduct with Tina, provides a little bit of explanation for why he acted the way that he did. He was frequently dismissed by those he worked with, he struggled with drug addiction, and he demanded loyalty even though he didn't really reward it. Again, none of that condones or dismisses the terror he put into Tina Turner's life. Three, there is a good amount of time that focuses on what's referred to as Tina Turner's wilderness period, the seven years after leaving Ike and finally striking it big as a solo artist. At this point, she took every gig she could to make ends meet for her children, 
couldn't land a record deal and tried to stay as active as possible in the music business before it finally came together. It's a lesson in self-worth, self-confidence, motivation, and long-term thinking that everyone should take hold of. Four, there are a lot of surprising things that are said or discussed in the film, including the fact that she figured she wanted to be the female Mick Jagger. Play stadiums, and she considered Private Dancer her first album. This is to make it clear that she was breaking away from Ike on both the solo album idea and the type of music she wanted to make herself a part of. And lastly, and most importantly, the film is chock full of awesome live performances. If you know anything about Tina, it likely has to do with the fact that she was the consummate, amazing live performer, both with the Ike and Tina Turner Review and as a solo artist. Like many recent documentaries I've seen, this one begins with her at the peak of her performing, and then it backtracks to cover the story. One of those amazing performances of a song I had no idea she'd even covered is a slowed-up, bluesy, and incredibly emotional rendition of the Beatles' Help. It's placed in the film at a spot where she's discussing how she had never really felt love in her life prior to her long-term relationship and now marriage to producer Erwin Bach. Unfortunately for the viewer, most of these performances are played at or nearly in their entirety so that you really get to see the full Tina Turner experience. There is so much, so much to recommend here that you just need to watch Tina, now streaming on HBO Max. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.